Welcome to The Observatory. I'm Jessica Helfand. And I'm Michael Beirut. The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. Our show is sponsored by MailChimp, which celebrates creative empathy in the world and creative chaos on the web. On each episode of The Observatory, we talk about a few topics that are on our minds and in the air. Now, last time we talked about what design sounds like, our first ever design observer symposium and it was about sound and visual culture and the relationship between those two things we had a great great roster of speakers and uh despite the endless tedious punishing snow that we've had here in the (laughs) northeast we had a really great enthusiastic turnout jessica what stood out for you well, I have to say, Michael, that the thing that I was excited about going in and was um, even over-delivered to my expectations uh, at the conference was Mike Errico. Yeah, so Mike yeah, Errico, yeah. for our listeners who may not know, is a singer-songwriter and has what turns out to be a kind of encyclopedic knowledge of musical history. He, he struck me as sort of like the ideal like college professor that I never had, uh, able to draw these great connections between high culture and low culture. He really talks about, you know, someone like Bach doing the Toccata and Fugue in D minor as a way to rip the ceiling off a great, you know, Gothic cathedral and just sort of rock that house. And then he immediately contrasted it to uh, ACDC Hell Spells. Playing Madison Square Garden is the same thing as playing, you know, a grand uh, European cathedral. It requires the same sort of attention to the qualities of, of echo and reverb and the way you have to kind of own that room. It sort of requires exactly the same uh, attention to sonic meaning and stuff. So I just thought it, I thought it was a really exciting, really uh, thrilling talk. You know, you and I sort of set this funny challenge to ourselves to sort of like, could you have a design conference and not really have it be dependent on slides, you know, of people showing visual things and talk about design somehow just in terms of its oral components. And I think, uh, uh, you know, it succeeded really well in that regard. Yeah, and I think sometimes that the intersections between speakers, um, Mike Erico talking about architecture, uh, we had an architect, Nick Sowers, who's part of a group called 52 Blue, which is a studio shaping spatial experiences with sound. So he calls himself a sound architect. And it's very interesting and almost a theatrical conceit. If you think about understanding the way people behave and what program is and what kind of the visual culture around architecture related to noise, he and his uh, his part partner started a series of neighborhood soundtracks. Uh, we're going to be running them on Design Observer. Uh, they're called Infringe. And the first he, one he's done that we're running on the site is a sonic tour of the Mission District, San Francisco's Mission District, where you actually hear the private buses going to tech firms. This is an interesting thing in San Francisco. These are these white double-decker buses. They have Wi-Fi. They have air conditioning. They're kind of like these shiny um, creatures that pop in and out of the city. And I think they're 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 complicated for for the people who live in San Francisco. You see them going through the Tenderloin, where there's a great deal of homelessness and and poverty. And uh, it's not clear that the high living on the white bus and the low living in the tenderloin has uh, really made sense to people living there. Yeah, and it all collides together right there in the Mission District and sort of a lot of uh, things that are happening in culture right now are all there and uh, they're often discussed, they're reported on, they're complained about, 
uh, they're ignored, but uh, the idea of just listening to them, I think, is uh, really an interesting way, again, to frame an issue that's been examined in a lot of, a lot of other ways. So after the symposium, uh, Michael, you flew off to Cape Town for the Design and Daba Conference. Uh, I was supposed to join you there, as you know, but instead I had my own struggles at the Newark airport where, after many cancellations, I ended up really just still in Newark. So other than uh, the beautiful sun in Cape Town, what did I miss? Well, for our listeners who don't know, um, Design in Daba is a yearly conference that happens almost always at the end of February in Cape Town, South Africa, and it is is just basically a, a celebration of global creativity. And um, uh, if I could um, kind of quote uh, someone else briefly, uh, there's a, uh, a writer uh, who I like quite a bit named Rob Alderson who writes for uh, the British blog and publishing firm called It's Nice That. And he wrote a review where he compared it to other conferences like TED. If you guys are familiar with the TED Talks, um, he said that this may be unfair, but uh, I think he's on to something. He said the TED Talks tend to now have this kind of huge sweep where every single speaker has to get up there, and if they don't change the world and get a standing ovation uh, from a tearful audience who feel that you know their lives have just been changed and their souls have been rocked to the core, you know that somehow the speech was not effective. And there's just one after another of these things, and they all sort of have the same cadence, which I think I hear in a lot of design conferences now. And so um, you come away kind of on a little bit of a high from those things, but it tends to uh, I find it doesn't stick with you as much as it might. Design and Daba, it sort of sets its um, uh, goal a little bit more precisely. It really is just about people telling personal stories. And the people that spoke there really, I think, that were the most effective, kind of combined remarkable work, remarkable insights, and, uh, and sort of like a certain modesty of presentation. They really connected with the audience and just uh, said, this is what I'm doing, and um, you know, maybe there's a lesson there for you. So the ones that uh, that stuck in my mind, actually, and there were a lot, uh, ranged from, and this will give you an idea about the range of speakers that come to Cape Town um, every year, uh, the L.A. chef Roy Choi, who sort of is credited as being the inventor or one of the inventors of the food truck movement. Again, just sort of like uh, the idea of reframing what design is. I, you don't think of cooking as being design, but of course it is design, right? Another speaker that I liked was... Um, a uh, young fashion designer from uh, South Africa living in London now named uh, Sindisu Kamalo, uh, who just, uh, she designs all these clothes that have these just kind of geometric, abstracted geometric patterns that sort of take the patterns we associate with uh, uh, African textiles and merge them more or less with the Bauhaus. And <laughs> she had me at African patterns merged with the Bauhaus. As far as I'm concerned, if, if I, like I was ready to kind of like insist that from now on everyone on earth wear her clothes, and I think that would be that would make the world a better place as much as any other things. You know, that would make income inequality and climate change more bearable if everyone just kind of looked so great wearing Sandizo's clothes. And then um, probably the um, the absolute star of the whole week was a young Israeli musician and video entrepreneur and technologist named uh, Yanni Block, 
who um, some of our uh, uh, listeners may know a piece he did a year or so ago that was a uh, music video for Bob Dylan's Like a Rolling Stone, in which he kind of created a 25-channel TV station, TV experience where you could flip channels and watch all these different kind of situations, all these different channels where the people were basically lip-syncing the same Bob Dylan song. And it goes from, like, the game show network to a reality TV show about bachelorettes to a romantic comedy with a yuppie couple arguing on a Brooklyn brownstone stoop. You know, and everyone's just sort of, like, uh, singing the same song. And it's done with such mastery. And I thought that was kind of the coolest thing. But he's working on some other things that are just so cool that he got... Uh, just about the only kind of like uh, spontaneous standing ovation this crowd gives. The crowd is a really a great crowd, but they're not on their feet for every speaker. They were on their feet for him. He was just great. When you tell that story about changing the channels, uh, it reminds me of something that many of you may have seen um, mm. uh, by now, a YouTube supercut of uh, graphic designers on TV and in the movies that was made by two students at Central St. Martin's in London, Ellen Mercer and Lucy Struhl. They set out to expose a history of what they see as the misrepresentation of graphic designers on the screen by doing this, basically this, this compendium of cuts from everything from June to Felicity, uh, films, television. I'm like a graphic designer. Well, FYI, I'm a graphic designer. He's like this nerdy graphic design type, but with a total stud body. We'll put a link to it on our site, but it's really an interesting point of view, which is to just expose the degree to which the word graphic design has come to mean so many things and has become such a popular and popularized thing in the media. I mean, what's funny about the cut, I mean, like I've been doing graphic design all my life, you know, uh, it's all I've ever done, and I sort of make no bones about it. People ask me what I do, I say I'm a graphic designer, and it means something very particular to me. And when I started doing it, like, no one knew what it was. If I got in a cab and the cab driver for some reason wanted to make conversation with me and asked me what I did, I'd say I was, I'd usually say I was a commercial artist because people didn't know what graphic design was. It's, it's interesting when you see the, just the scope of, and the, the, the scenes are actually very well edited in this film, but it really makes you think about, you know, the ones from The Office, for example. You like doing logos. Why don't you do this logo? You know, as though the logo is the kind of carrot at the end of the stick dangling before every potentially creative person with a laptop. And I think they're right to expose it this way because, in fact, you do find yourself explained. Did you have to explain to cab drivers what a commercial artist was? A lot of times they just got bored, but then they would, people usually, even when I say I'm a graphic designer, they'll usually make a little step and sometimes they'll say like, like with computers and then I'll sort of say, yeah, you know, like with computers and stuff. But, you know, that's new. Don't you think that's relatively new? I mean, years ago it was, you mean posters and things? Or, you know, the truly enlightened cab driver or equivalent person who you, you met at a party or didn't know what design was would say, book jackets? You know, now it's really the assumption is you do something on a screen. Oh, well, I remember uh, one time um, uh, I met some older gentleman and he said what do you do and i made the mistake i think i was like trying to sound a little bit more impressive and i said well i'm a designer and and then he you have to picture this in your mind he sort of took his hands and did that like hourglass shape thing that you do uh when and he said like and he said like <laughs> like for girls and like you meant like, like a fashion designer and i said no no i don't design you know dresses i design um book covers and things and sometimes people get that i know it's it's you know and then you have people like my um, my mother-in-law who i adore 
And uh, she went shopping at Saks Fifth Avenue and came home with shopping bags, merchandising shopping bags that I happened to have designed. And my lovely wife, Dorothy, said to her mom, hey, you know, Mike designed those bags. And she looked at the bags. I can tell she was what Dorothy had just said was almost borderline unfathomable to her because she couldn't, she saw bags. The bags had handles. The bags were sufficiently sturdy for her to bring the stuff from the store back home. And somehow though, you know, this guy, her son-in-law had had some, you know, agency in the creation of these bags. And she just could not figure out what it was. And like, she said, oh, really? And Dorothy said, and she's not, she's smart. And Dorothy said, yeah, he like, you know, he designed the graphics. And she indicated sort of like the, you know, the way the ink was on the paper, the bags. And, you know, it wasn't like a drawing. It wasn't artful. It wasn't like, you know, it was sort of just, you know, graphic. And she just sort of like nodded pleasantly. And I'm not sure she actually believed Dorothy or uh, was any closer to understanding what it is I do exactly. On the other hand, I think what that supercut indicates is that sort of just being a graphic designer is some sort of new, just kind of signifier of some kind of borderline kind of relevant idea of you know, a hip profession that kind of is um, creative, but you're able to buy nice clothes. That's exactly it. And I think that of, of all the clips in there, it's the Juno one that seems to suggest that. What did you have in mind exactly? I was thinking more like graphic designer, mid-30s, you know, with a cool Asian girlfriend who like dresses awesome and rocks out on the bass guitar. I had a teacher once who used to tell this story that he went to his dentist and as he, as he was lowered down into the dentist chair, which already the act of which so establishes your complete inferiority in all things dental surgery related. His dentist looked down at him and he said, so Howard, how's graphic art? And Howard looked up at him and he said, so doc, how's dental hygiene? <laughs> so there's something I think about the mechanics of it that, that you know, <laughs> in, in your case, the story about you and your mother-in-law, I mean, you're, you're the man behind the curtain, right? I mean, you're, you're making this thing. How is it mass produced? People don't really know that. They don't really think about that. And I don't think printing or the dissemination through printing of something is necessarily what, what people use as their guide to understand graphic design. I think television and video and film clips is what they use to understand graphic design. And I think these two students were, were really smart to put this thing together. It's gotten a lot of play online. And secretly, it's flattering. I think that, I'm, I'm not sure if you're complaining about it or if you find it dismaying, but I think anyone who sort of thinks it sort of is absurd on one hand is secretly kind of pleased that, uh, that, <laughs> that, any, that anyone at all, including actors um, uttering lines written by screenwriters, is, are pretending that graphic designers are some sort of, um, you know, new avatars of cool. But I'll, I'll take it as opposed to the other way around. No, I love it. And I, you know what I mostly love about it? I love it that it was done by students and I love how honest it is. And I, you know, I'm, we're all about celebrating the student here at Design Observer. So more power to them, I say. Yeah, I think there's a certain amount of real self-awareness to it too. The impression I get is that uh, um, this wasn't done just as, uh, isn't this funny or cool, but I think uh, sort of, you know, embedded in there is a critique of, you know, I think graphic designers amongst all design professionals get uh, criticized sometimes of doing stuff that is inherently cosmetic, inherently ephemeral, inherently, um, you know, non-essential in a way. 
Yeah, and I think that it used to be architects in films. I'm thinking of, you know, Tom Hanks in Sleepless in Seattle. You know, you want the guy to be creative, but he can't be so creative that he can't make a living. I think in some ways the designer has supplanted that. Oh, exactly. When the flaw with that, of course, was that, um, you know, I mean, the the dad and the Brady Bunch was an architect, if you recall. And, um, you know, they lived in that, like, the 1970s completely anodine, 70s split-level ranch. And, uh, you know, any architect you know just is, like, no matter who they are, no matter where they live, they're, like, really particular about their surroundings and have a kind of degree of heightened abnormality about their affect. And I think... Uh, but in the Brad- 70s, that was, that was considered... <laughs> considered to be the, the, the gold standard was to yes. live in a thing that looked like that. Probably was really great at the time. The other thing that when you, when you start to think about the representation of architects in films, it's always men. Oh, that's for sure. Yeah. It's really a primarily gendered thing. And I don't know if that's just because it's like the hard hat or it's buildings. There's something, you know, you don't, we rarely see the, the woman as the architect. And I, whereas I think the graphic designer portrayed in film and television is very much, you know, it's, it's cross-gender. It's what it needs to be. It's not necessarily just the man. Yeah, and, and, you know, it's actually particularly in a challenging job market, which we have today, and, uh, you know, what some people uh, observe rightly is the limited or sort of diminished prospects that new graduates might be facing in terms of what the possibilities are. Graphic design, or at least the skills associated with graphic design, represents some sort of viable route out of it, regardless of how old you are, regardless of what gender you are. And the I think in the pilot episode of Girls, uh, Lena Dunham's uh, great series on HBO, I think uh, in, in an early episode, um, she gets kind of like pushed out of a job, but they're keeping on someone else that they cut away to and it's just like this uh you know quiet looking woman sitting at a computer and she gets to keep her job because quote she knows photoshop unquote and i think sort of like you know just sort of like you know the professional gravity design is getting reduced to knowing a single computer program and the mystical powers that inf- infers uh Listen, I want, I, want to say, I want to say something about Lena Dunham. So th- this, this we're going to put on our site because I've been looking for an opportunity to introduce this. Before Lena Dunham did what she did with girls and, and her quest for world domination through television, she was a really great kid. She's, we're family friends with her parents. And uh, she once wanted to make a sitcom about graphic design in my studio. Oh, really? And I recently found the pilot, the, the, basically the breakdown of the first couple of episodes. And there were all these very kind of Mary Tyler Moore show as um, situations like where Fiona, who was then about, my daughter, who was then about, I think, seven, you know, gets locked out for the day and, and we're all on deadline, so we ignore her, so she builds a house in the backyard. I mean, they were very, very funny, and I've been wondering what to do with them, and now, thanks to your mentioning Lena Dunham, I'm going to post it on Design Observer oh, as a follow-up, okay. and, and well, maybe, some, maybe, maybe some new young Lena Dunham person will come along and actually want to do this. Before we change the subject, I wanted to raise one last one that just occurred to me. This is goes back to the early 90s. I think it was the remake of the movie Cape Fear. And I don't think the the supercut has an excerpt from that. There's one other one that they... You, you could talk about Cape Fear. The other one that they missed was was Catwoman. Halle Berry is an art director for... Oh, yeah, she's, she's a, graphic a graphic designer, designer But, you know, yeah. in typical Hollywood style, she can't just be a graphic designer by day, Catwoman by night. She's a graphic designer for a large cosmetics company. Yeah, so we yeah. understand that, you know, that's the lens through which we see her role. Yeah, well, Je- Jessica Lang is uh, seems appears to be like a freelance graphic designer in Cape Fear, and I remember early on 
her son comes up to her and she's like at a drawing board, kind of looking very photogenic, kind of sketching. And he, they have like an interchange, which is sort of like a what you doing, mommy interchange. And she says, well, I'm doing a uh, logo for a travel agency, I think she says. And then, um, then she says, it's difficult because I have to somehow combine, um, you know, the idea of speed with the idea of stability. And they're really two different things. And like, you know, I remember thinking, whoa, you know, I mean, like someone's like actually trying to use the design of this logo to kind of establish, you know, much deeper and potentially darker themes about the entire movie, which has to do with like, you know, Robert De Niro playing a terrifying homicidal murderer, of course, and um, with love and hate tattooed on his hands. So somehow it's all foreshadowed by this, you know, fairly common, I dare say, logo uh, quandary. You know, the client wants two things at once and they're difficult to reconcile. So way to go, Jessica Lange. And uh, I, I think she, I would hire her. I think before I'd hire um, Catwoman as my graphic designer. Good to know. I'll put that. <laughs> I'll put that down, and I'll make a note of it. I actually think that Dustin Hoffman in um, Kramer versus Kramer is an art advertising art director. Seems to be incredibly accurate. It's dated now, obviously, because it takes place, you know, decades ago. But they get they get it down perfectly. Sort of the way he sort of talks about his work when he brings the work home and he's got it spread out on the table. You know, he's got all these like uh, you know transparencies, and his uh, son accidentally knocks a drink over on top of them. You know, and it sort of is. It really is about a very ugly um, divorce proceeding between. Uh, you know, a married couple with a um, custody battle over their son. And there's a moment where he sort of is uh, about to go into custody hearing and he loses his job. So he has to get a job at another agency before he uh, has his hearing. And he has this like interview during a Christmas party. Screamer, do you mind if I ask you why you're interested in a position for which you're clearly overqualified? I need the job. Uh, let me think about it. I'll let Jack know when you get in touch. No, this is a one-day-only offer, gentlemen. You saw my book, you know I can handle the work. I'm willing to take a salary cut. The only thing is you're going to have to let me know today, not tomorrow, not next week, not at the, the end of the holidays. If you really want me, you make your decision right now. And you just know that that actually must have actually happened to someone. And I'm assuming the person that actually happened to that it happened to was the uh, guy who wrote the screenplay and who directed it, Robert Benton. Now, Robert Benton, his claim to fame was he uh, was the uh, uh, writer of um, Bonnie and Clyde, and uh, then he made Kramer versus Kramer after that. But before he did any of that, he was uh, the art director of Esquire magazine. So you, you can just tell that he like this was his life and. And it's uh, you know this very kind of '60s '70s view of uh, of uh, what it was like to be a um, art director in those days. But if you want to sort of see a perfectly uh, wrought time capsule that I think looks dead accurate to me, uh, Dustin Hoffman's uh, uh, portrayal in Kramer vs. Kramer is the quintessential art director. As opposed to Robert Reed on the Brady Bunch. <laughs> the quintessential architect, yeah, living in a, in a ranch house. Before we go, is there anything that uh, caught your eye this week that you want to talk about? Well, on the subject of everyone's a designer now and the degree to which people feel their role in life is perhaps more visually inclined than it used to be, I was very taken with the story that the Bank of Canada has uh, made a formal request to ask citizens to stop turning <laughs> the guy on the $5 Canadian bill into Leonard Nimoy. Well, not uh, just Leonard Nimoy, but, uh, but Dr. Spock. Spock. Leonard Nimoy Dr. Spock, Spock. Specifically, and, yeah. And, you know, really all it takes is a lowering of the hairline, the, the eyebrow going up, 
and sideburns worthy of Elvis Presley. Uh, they're very funny. They're, uh, it's been written about several places, but uh, the idea that apparently uh, drawing on money is legal in Canada. In Australia, drawing on money can get you a two-year jail sentence. Wow. So before you draw on those, on those bills, uh, <laughs> maybe Google what, what the uh, legal issues are in the country in which you're thinking of making that defacing of public property. Check with your local constable. But how, how beautiful <laughs> a, um, a tribute to uh, Leonard Nimoy and that character it, it he is. created on Star Trek where people are able to just sort of like, you know, create their own instant portrait of him and carry it in his wallet and maybe buy a uh, cup of coffee with it or something. It's, it's, really, it's really an amazing thing. And it's sort of, I, if, you know, it sort of means that in a way, you know, these days everyone is a designer, everyone is an architect, everyone is is their own Banksy to a certain degree. Uh, they're able to kind of take something and transform it like that. And I think that's actually kind of uh, lovely, whether it's legal or not in your local jurisdiction. And it kind of comes full circle back to Mike Errico, who's sort of a polymath. You know, Leonard Nimoy was an artist. He was a collector. Mm-hmm. He was a musician. He released an album in the 60s. Yeah. Photographer and a Vulcan. Yeah. <laughs> Let us not forget. Half Vulcan. He was half Vulcan. Certainly the Bank of Canada remembers this well. The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. Our website is designobserver.com, and you can find out more about some of the things we talked about today, including Nick Sowers' Sounds of the Mission District, if you visit our site anytime. And between episodes, you can keep up with Design Observer on Facebook and on Twitter. Let us know what you thought of the show, and if there's something you want us to talk about next time, please let us know that as well. You can subscribe to The Observatory on iTunes and on SoundCloud. Please tune in to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, our other podcast. A big thank you to MailChimp for sponsoring the observatory. Teddy Blanks wrote our theme music. And our producer is Blake Eskin. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Jessica. Talk to you next time.